Hello and welcome to the Global Cosmetics News Podcast. Today we'll be talking about the trends that have shaped beauty over the course of 2019 and looking at what we can expect to see over the year ahead. But first, it's my pleasure to introduce our panellists. On the phone from New York, we have Cherie Bouziak, who's CEO and founder of Beauty Edge. On the phone from Singapore, we have Nicole Fool, who's Head of Trends, Asian Consumer Intelligence. And in the London studio with me, Joanne Bell, Brand Insight and Content Director at Three the Birds. Welcome, everybody. So let's start by having a look over 2019. Um, From CBD to sustainability, it's been a really interesting year for cosmetics. What, in your opinion, have been the dominant trends this year and which ones are going to stay the course into 2020? Cherie, do you want to start us off? Sure. I would say um, for 2019, as I was thinking about this, natural, natural, and more natural has been 2019. And... um, it will continue. It will continue. I, the consumer is just so engaged in not only for skincare, but what she's putting or she or he are putting in their body. So it, it connects very strongly to the wellness movement. Um, sustainability, transparency, food sources as ingredients. And then I would say um, the next level down, probiotics and skin's microbiome. Looking into that even further probably will be very strong in 220. And something towards the end of this year that, that I've seen bubble up is putting this delicately our products for women down below. So, um, and, and really paying attention to how she goes through a life cycle from a, a young woman to through menopause. So there's different types of products and um, materials that are starting to really come forth and focus on that. So I see that going even stronger in 220. And uh, Nicole, is that the same from your perspective in Asia? Definitely with the natural. Natural has been really huge in this part of the world. And when I look across at product launches in Japan and Korea and even out of Southeast Asia, Definitely a huge interest in clean beauty, um, any products that can kind of have any sort of, you know, uh, impact on how people feel. That's starting to come through a bit as well. And also, um, I think when I look overseas, when we're, you know, tracking the US, obviously CBD in everything has been massive. Um, That hasn't really made its way over to this part of the world, but I have seen a few things in Japan already launching and obviously big interest in Australia where the markets are allowed um, to have CBD. So um, definitely agree with Cherie that natural has been the strongest trend so far. Joanne, anything to add? I think I think I can echo CBD has really landed on the shores of the UK recently at the Indie uh, Beauty Expo here in London just this past month. I think I, there was probably like 20 brands featuring CBD as an ingredient or as their key messaging. I also think that what we've seen is a real focus on waste um, here and sustainability, particularly focusing on plastic waste, but not only plastic waste, a real drive towards simplicity and stripping back um, what might be considered overconsumption. So we've seen research out of Mintel talking about nearly one in three women have actively cut back on the complexity in products used in their beauty regime. And likewise, what we've seen is a real focus 
on skin first, I think would be fair to say, a move away. And we've we've seen whether it's with results from Sephora, results from Estee Lauder, a real um, slip away of colour cosmetics in favour of skincare. And I think when we think about launches like Glossier's, um, oh, the, the, the perfect skin from Glossier in a tube, the latest product that they've brought out with these illuminating and glow claims. And what we're noticing is also that, um, according to Mintel, the products that are most strongly going in colour cosmetics are those that are effectively uh, skincare adjacent to colour cosmetics, such as BB cream, CC creams, um, tinted moisturisers. So we're really seeing a move towards streamlining. And that's something that's really coming to the fore. Likewise, the rise of solid bars here in the UK. And within Hollander Barrett, which is our leading retailer um, for, I suppose, health and wellness, um, um, they've gone pretty much plastic-free, really pu- um, pushing solid bars like Ethique. We've seen Unilever launch its um, Love Beauty and Planet solid shampoo bars. So that's something that is... It's in our media every day here, mainstream media, our, our mainstream um, uh, newspapers, magazines, etc. So that's what seems to be happening here, uh, a shift towards more mindful consumption. And talking about mindful consumption, um, we've certainly seen in some markets a backlash against the sheet mask recently. They've become the new wipe, the new cotton bud, the new straw, um, if you like. Do we see that across the world? And do we think sheet masks are going to radically change over the next year to become, if they want to maintain the momentum, are they going to be made of different materials? Are they going to be reusable, for example? Cherie, what do you think? How's the uh, zero waste movement happening in America? It's it's a movement that has a lot of attention. I uh, We don't have all the answers. I don't think the industry in general has all of the answers to change everything quickly. However, just um, referencing the sheet masks, there are availabilities of biodegradable materials for manufacturers, for those companies that would like to um, engage in this area. It's a little bit, sometimes a little bit more pricey in development. However, in our stores, particularly going into the drug stores that we have here and the specialty stores, they're very strong still. Sheet masks are still very strong. And as far as this one category being a strong issue, I think because of the option of knowing and being able to develop with a biodegradable material, uh, I haven't seen a strong pushback on that. Nicole, I mean, obviously sheet masks came from Asia in the first place. Is Korea going to be leading the march into sustainability? Do do Asian consumers care? Probably not at the moment. Um, depressingly, I was just actually in uh, Myeongdong, which is uh, kind of the Disneyland of beauty within Seoul. Um, you know, thousands of shops concentrated into one area. And uh, I was there over the weekend looking at stores with a client. And I have to say there was absolutely, you know, zero uh, change with regards to sustainability and, uh, you know, cutting back on masks. In fact, they were just as you know, prevalent as they always have been. I don't think consumers unfortunately are that aware of the issues regarding um you know single usage of uh, these products and if anything you know uh, i was looking at probiotic masks and they're even put in you know little capsules so sadly no the awareness is just not there yet and or if it is there it's it tends to be really focused around plastic bags and straws they've become the you know the um the evil products rather than skincare 
So sadly, not yet. However, I do feel that in countries like Singapore, there is an understanding that, you know, sustainability is as significant and, and you know, so there's um, the government is actively encouraging local manufacturers to think more about a circular economy, you know, integrating incre- ingredients from food and then trying to, um, you know, apply these perhaps into skincare or, or to other areas. So it will be a top-down approach, as it usually is in this part of the world, especially in places like Japan. And from there, we'll hopefully see some results fairly soon. Interesting. So if you had to choose the biggest trend of the year to date in your particular market, what would you choose? So, Cherie, from the Americas, what is the biggest trend? What What is going to carry I, forward? Yeah, I would say that the biggest whirlwind is CBD and um, how this is going to play out in many different areas because it's not only being considered or used and launching in skincare, it's also launching in um, supplements or ingestibles. That's part of our beauty industry as well. So as we continue to flesh this out, there will be and there are brands that are launching, but at the same time, as this continues, the questions come up and it's sometimes from state to state, uh, legalities, going back to where the material is sourced from, to the state it's sourced from, to the banking system, whether the bank will take in proceeds from a company because of the material itself. So I don't, I see this growing. I, I also see that if the material, CBD, in any way cannabis, however you want to label it right now, is used, I see it coupled up probably with other soothing ingredients um, to create a marketing story, to maybe have a presence to talk about it, but then really have another driver within the formulation to address uh, skin conditions. Because it it seems to, like, top line, it seems to be a cure-all for everything. But quite frankly, when you go back and, and look at how we've tracked raw materials through the years, of uh, raw material companies, there are testings that are done and whether it's on skin or in vitro, how those testings lay themselves out, there's some sort of a history and a benchmark to go again. And so there's a lot of learning that still have to, in my opinion, take place to really put this material in a position as we go forward. And I I think also uh, just from a consumer perspective, there isn't strong clarity. It's not black and white. It's not, okay, no, when I I think about this material, I think about alpha hydroxy acids when they launched years and years ago. At least we knew going forward, okay, we need a pH that we need to get to in a formula that is mass acceptable and we need a percentage that's mass acceptable. And, and we were able to get to that black and white chart from formulation. Here, um, there are levels that are being used, but still, I'm not seeing it as I would like to see it as a product developer to, to have a sense of um, comfort. There's a lot of questions that still be answered. Mm-hmm. But I would say for sure that has been spinning the industry. 
Fab. And Nicole, same question. What do you think is the keeper trend from the Asian market and how will it develop over the course of 2020? I think one of the largest um, movements we've seen is around cosmetic brands and skincare brands really responding to consumers' complaints about skin sensitivities. So a lot of um, consumers in the region, I think it's almost 50% of skincare users, identify with having sensitive skin or um, you know, issues. So a lot of the brands have started to move in the direction of, you know, either being more minimalist in the ingredients or claiming to be, um, you know, lots of talk around cleaner beauty, um, more transparent kind of labeling, but really just, you know, um, brands even on the mass side shifting into, you know, uh, ranges that address sensitive skin issues. Um, and this has been driven by a number of factors. Obviously, the environment is, you know, in certain parts of China and Korea, um, you know, the, uh, the air quality can be quite poor. People are really, really worried about their skin. And consequently, I mean, they should be, you know, they're worried about their lungs, but they're also worried about their skin. And consequently, um, you know, perhaps it's been the overuse of skincare, um, you know, rituals in the past with too many steps. But now there's just a sort of general consensus that, you know, less is more. So that's really been a, a quite a significant trend this year. And a lot of brands have moved in that in, in that area. And Joanne in Europe? I think, to be fair, as I said, I've around mindful consumption, but really around sustainability in its broadest sense um, is what I'm purchasing, doing harm to me, people, the people that are working in it, the animals, the wider environment in that sense, the choices that I'm making, uh, are they are they working? Are they worth it? What value are they bringing to me? I did a brief straw poll at the, at the school gate today to assess the mood at the school gate uh, amongst a variety of mums of ages. And what was notable is all of them had moved in some way to a more sustainable or perceived sustainable form of beauty and personal care products. One reference using plastic-free wipes, another you referred to removing wipes, etc. entirely. Another was talking about the fact that they streamlined the re, um, routine and generally looking at ingredients for natural, sustainable and certifications. So what we've seen here in the UK at least is as a mainstream belief, there is a real sense that what we buy and put in our face and our skin and indeed what we put in our bodies is really, really important on multiple fronts. And I don't think that's going anywhere. Now let's look at some of the nascent trends we've seen in the last few months develop and that are expected at least to be big in 2020. I mean, from an ingredients perspective, we've heard um, Glow Recipes founders talk about encapsulated ingredients. Sheree, what's your take? Do you think this is something that's going to be huge? Do you think we're going to see retinol, encapsulated retinol, for example, overtake the popular retinol at the moment because it will reduce sensitivity? I, that, if we're speaking specifically to that, I would say that what I saw in the last half of this year were multiple, uh, I would say, resurgence of worker-type raw materials and retinol is a worker material, meaning that you're, you will see a difference in your skin in some fashion, whether you'll see an immediate sensitivity or a skin smoothing or um, a rejuvenation because it's, it's a powerful material. Um, it was retinol and then vitamin C was another resurgence I saw this year. And when I say resurgence, I'm saying there, I, I saw retinol launch at the same time in Origins, in Lauder, in Drunk Elephant, all, all kind of within a month of each other. 
and so to say that that is um, going to be flowing through all of the other brands, I think that that it's there. I, I think the way that it's being delivered or how it's being accompanied with another material can be uh, what we'll see this year. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that retinol is the key one because it, it's kind of already come out, right? Um, vitamin C, again, I'm seeing new launches. And I think with these materials, because they're drivers and what I what we call kind of workhorses, is how they're blended together. So if it's going to be an encapsulation, I think more of it's going to be dependent upon whether the brand can afford that technology. And to be able to afford that, of course, it, it's going to um, have a different performance on the skin. Some materials um, that I see and have heard bubbling up a little bit um, are ashwagandha, which is more for soothing and healing. So hypothetically, if you do a retinol and then you combine it with something soothing at the same time, um, the benefit and how the user experiences and going back to the previous comment about sensitive skin, for sure, um, people, as they purchase products, that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind is, is how is this going to affect my skin? My skin is sensitive. And I, and I think it's a broad stroke um, thought process for the most part that consumers feel that their skin tends to be more sensitive these days. So um, just going back to retinol, I think that it's kind of funny having been in the beauty industry for quite some time. It's almost like uh, fashion repeating itself, right? Fashion repeats itself every 20 years, but it's, it's made current. And mm -hmm. I think that What's happening is that the consumer that is receiving this particular uh, technology is maybe seeing it for the first time because they're they're you know 20 years ago they were maybe not maybe they were five five years <laughs> old so it wouldn't have been for them so now that they're of age to use it it would be something that would look new to them. And how about um, the CBD, uh, Cherie? Do you think that we'll see more marijuana-derived ingredients next year, or do you think the focus will still very much be on CBD itself? Uh, yes, CBD for sure. Uh, I, I was working on a project earlier, and um, what I would like to see happen in the industry is that there would be strong communication and clear communication because of what, uh, where the material comes from because there are so many different pieces that are used from either the species or the plant or the level and um, quality and such. And sometimes when you go to the websites of brands that I'm going to call them under the radar, where they're not really being tracked because they're kind of tiny, it's, it's a little unsettling even for someone like myself who's doing research. First, you, you open up into the website, and then you have to click off that you are over 18 years of age, but they're only selling a skincare product that maybe has CBD. So to me, that's a little misleading. It almost puts a thought process in the user's mind of, wow, this is um, still kind of taboo. Mm -hmm. So, that, and that, those questions are there with the consumer. There, for here in the U.S., we have different studies that go on, and I, I was just pulling one up. I believe it was between 35 to 44-year-old 
who the consumers were that were, and there was about 500. And, you know, some of the questions that they still had on using this material. And there is an interest, but the education needs to be there. So I see it strong. I don't, I do not see it going away. I think us as an industry, we as an industry have to uh, just be very, very good communicators of the benefits. Mm-hmm. Nicole, what, what ingredients are trending in Asia and, and what do you see um, being popular in 2020 from an ingredients perspective? Well, some things that we've seen quite a bit and coming through is obviously um, a singular focus around a particular ingredient. So, you know, that's always been the case, but now consumers are looking for higher percentages or from that, they're looking for formulations that, you know, claim to be 95%. Um, natural or or derived from natural plant butters or oils or shea or, you know, so um, the consumers themselves are really actively seeking something that's either of a higher percentage or, um, you know, derived from a high quality plant that they perceive as higher quality. Um, something I saw quite a bit over the weekend in Seoul was, um, obviously, Seeker has been around for quite a while but um, Seeker in a new kind of disguise, which was um, being called tiger grass or, or um, tiger leaf. That was really, really big. A number of brands that I was looking at kind of had formulations that claimed to have 97% tiger leaf um, in their skincare. Um, so when I was speaking to consumers around their thoughts around, you know, tiger grass and some of the ingredients they were seeing, um, for them, it was really the excitement about having so much of that ingredient in products. So that's definitely a trend that we're seeing in Asia is just that um, recognition that if something's premium, it must have a higher percentage. Um, in terms of the, the actives that we're seeing over in the West, um, you know, the vitamin Cs and retinols, they're not as popular in this part of the world. And Joanne, same question. For- yeah, I mean, think on what, and then I'm reflecting on what people have said already, which is around, I think it's like bioengineered naturals, you know, high performance naturals with um, meaningful efficacy and certification, ideally, to, to back them up. So by spec, it's almost a kind of hybrid of natural and organic and pure science to make it really work on your skin. So I'm thinking about Alba Mueller's um, Phytamis Organic range, Cosme Phytamis Organic range, which look, it's they're kind of like super concentrated organic versions of 20 different um, um, natural actives. I'm thinking about copaiba boil, uh, prickly pear, camu camu, uh, sea buckthorns coming back. But I think what's really interesting about them is quite often these um, hypernaturals, these bioengineered naturals are being used very specifically and geographically specific for brands trying to maintain a sense of place. So we've seen the launch of Codex, which is a, a new brand which builds itself a global global brand uh, we, and everyone's based around the world it, it recently launched at Indie Beauty Expo both in New York and in London and, and it's aiming to um, tell a story of each country via its natural ingredients via bioengineered um, natural ingredients so it started in Ireland I believe it's going to go to um, Chile next with the Mapuche tribe really using those naturals and the traditional stories and why they've been used traditionally for skin remedies and such like but as um, has been said at a kind of high concentration high efficacy kind of way we're also seeing a lot of um, vegan uh, natural alternatives to traditional um, materials coming through and I can think of um, bioactives um, natural 
Natrolite, which is a silicon alternative. I believe that launched in Cosmetics Asia um, just last week. So a lot of people are looking for natural, high-powered, efficacious alternatives to traditional ingredients. And I also think I, I understand from Asia, but also unusually so, um, perhaps in more into Europe and America, is a lot of milk. Um, we're seeing um, a lot of launches featuring um, milk. Lorna of um, NCOS Developments here in uh, the UK, but she also works into Korea. Formulator is really noticed uh, goat milk, deer milk, ewe milk, every kind of milk. And I, I believe there's been multiple thousands of launches in, so we say, Western markets in the past year, which hasn't necessarily um, been that true over here. And also, I think, um, to be fair, again, adaptogens, adaptive ingredients, such as particularly wild indigo seems to be bubbling and uh, baobab seed. So again, these the idea, you know, as, as we're saying, adaptogens, which traditionally have been used in brands like Moondust, which have been internally ingested for beauty supplements, but also um, giving adaptive qualities to heat and light on the skin. And I know that there's a, a range uh, called MMS Skincare um, where they use these dynamic adaptives onto the skin, which um, respond to UV light, to heat, etc., that kind of give you ongoing protection throughout the day. And then finally, as has been referenced, upcycled ingredients. Um, this has been something quite powerful in what I kind of say, almost like the homemade side of indie brands within the UK. I can think of um, UpCircle using used coffee grounds and used chai tea spices and also a more high-end, Le Prunier in, 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 in America using plum pits for its high-end oil. But you know it's really here to stay when Cargill have um, got on the uh, ingredient uh, roster and they've got a new fibre design ingredient derived from waste lemons. So I think when the big ingredient manufacturers starting to look at um, upcycled waste streams and food streams, you know it's firmly here to stay. Fab. Let's talk a little bit about um, beauty tech because we're seeing a lot of LED um, emerge. Let's talk a little bit about that. Is that the case over in America, Cherie? Is LED the hottest treatment around their LED uh, devices are available. I would say, though, uh, there's a company called New Face here in the U.S. and uh, Microcurrents. And the Microcurrents are devices. They're, they're small handheld devices that New Face has developed, and they just moved into body this year. And this company is growing pretty quickly. The results are very fast. You can, depending on... I would say the aging of your face, let's put it that way, how much um, needs to be uh, addressed that you could see results in the first treatment. And so I would say, yes, we have LED, but I think that the microcurrent probably offers something a little bit quicker and um, visual. And they're a little pricey, though. The devices are a bit pricey and uh, that it's targeted to a specific consumer. But I, I would see this as we tend to look to the spa slash medical industry and what is used in, in the medispa type of things, how we try to bring them to a mass market. I, I see this growing for sure. And the access, I would say, probably is mostly through um, purchasing through QVC and HSN because you can see how the device is used, um, trying to stir up in store, like pop-ups and those types of things. You can get, you can gather an audience that I think that there is a farther reach when it's introduced um, through uh, other channels. 
for sure. Because of the price point, yeah. And Nicole, is is that the case in Asia? And is live streaming helping sell beauty devices too? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, beauty devices are huge in this part of the world. I mean, for example, um, if you look at maybe even uh, Foreo's sales, I believe that in China, they were something like $85 million in 2017 compared to $17 million in the US. Um, and this was particularly driven by millennials. It's not even kind of, uh, you know, consumers from different demographics. It really is people, um, you know, 25 and younger in China in particular, who are looking for products which they believe will accelerate their self-care rituals. So, you know, massive, massive um, demand for products or gadgets, whether it's the full facial LED masks um, from LG or, you know, more, uh, you know, the smaller ones that we see or even the kind of um, low-tech versions, you know, the uh, jade rollers, you know, pretty much... Um, everyone has got some version of a a gadget and yeah consumers love them in this part of the world I mean they truly believe that you know they do help with the skincare rituals and and, you know we'll kind of you know if you're cleansing it will help you deeply cleanse if you you're looking for tightening you know rather than just using your fingers um, these gadgets will accelerate that. So there's a, there's a huge belief in technology and obviously the stand for a lot of the key opinion leaders and the influencers who are using these products and or claim to be using them and you know, and consumers are, are looking at them. And, and again, particularly in this part of the world, social media is so important and uh, a lot of it is you know, religiously followed. Joanne, are we adopting devices over in Europe? I'm doing that kind of shaky head thing. Come on. <laughs> I'm going to say that it's absolutely um, correct to say that it's come off of an exceptionally low base here. And to be fair, the UK and our part of Europe has traditionally been a very don't treat your skin, put makeup on it to cover it up kind of market. So traditionally, a lot of the techniques and things that are associated with skincare, which is facial massage, and you things like jade rollers and all of that such, hasn't been something that's been part of skincare ritual in or our beauty ritual in the UK. So it's been a really big um, leap to suddenly go into um, devices to help you do something you've never even done before. So it's coming off a low base, but showing a great deal of growth. And I think it's fair to say that if you go into any any, uh, mainstream beauty drugstore such as uh, Walking Boots or if you go into Selfridges or the department stores they now have counters for beauty devices you know for Rio as mentioned as well uh, we do have new skin here as well um, that are now gaining should we say a foothold but I wouldn't say that there's something that's critical part of um, people's regime I would notice though that some of the things that seem to be emerging are less around kind of I don't know, everyday anti-aging um, devices that, as I said, don't necessarily naturally fit into people's um, um, beauty ritual, but more product treatment devices. That's what seems to have um, get so, uh, unfortunately, J&J have had to remove this from the market, but the 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 LED mask that obviously was anti-acneic, that, that got a lot of um, coverage and a great deal of penetration before... Um, it was pulled. I can think of stuff with millennials. There's a lovely uh, product that's come out in the US called Skin uh, Skin Static, and it's called a Surge Stick, and it's actually focused on treating pigmentation, hyperpigmentation, those with darker skins, with a product and an active that works to also um, fade and fight redness. So it strikes me that there are 
rather than a general day-to-day, it's more of a tool, I have a problem, what will help me? So poor vacuums, um, you know, deep cleansing, that that's where it seems to um, seems to be gaining traction here. And I, but I do think it does show the problem with J&J, does show the problem of using these very potentially high-powered devices. And there's been some issues around microneedling here, um, which is graining traction here, but there have been infections. There's, you know, this, when we start to really get into the skin with high performance um, devices and gadgets, it can have some bad effects. So I guess it's always going to be the question around safety and efficacy. Let's talk wellness. Do you think the mood beauty trend is here to stay? Do you think it will take off in 2020? Cherie, do you want to start us off? Sure. This is one of my, I would say, lead trends. Um, and and I don't think, uh, to me, it's more of a lifestyle at this point. And, it, and I see this getting bigger in so many different ways. And wellness, the Wellness Global Institute, I believe I'm saying that correctly. Pardon me if I'm not. I, I don't have it in front of me. But um, I follow them, that whole organization, and the whole wellness industry is somewhere around $4.2 trillion. And how I see this moving forward is, is not just everything that we've been doing with sustainability and natural and taking care of myself. It's so much more of a bigger picture of a holistic perspective where it's whole body, mentally, spiritually, and physically. It's everything captured together because as we move forward, we're starting to see brands not only address what I would say our lifestyle chaos or issues, our stress, our lack of sleep and such. It's also combining that with mindfulness where the the brands are trying to move forward and say, okay, we, here's a product for you to use, but also here's an app to pair up with the product that plays or addresses or connects to a mindfulness app. So there's, I'm seeing already, there's um, a company, Talika, that's launched that pairs a podcast with uh, these little eye decompressors that are supposed to reduce, I guess, puffiness, but it talks to relaxation at the same time that you're using the product along with the app. So there's wellness almost merging with technology to address us in a whole holistic perspective. That's one area that I see um, very strong as far as wellness. And then also, I would say even a resurgence of how fragrance has natural functionality, so natural fragrance with skin functionalities, whether it would be anti-aging or healthy hydration and suppleness and those types of things. There's um, a tremendous amount coming through, but I would say if I were to pick one, that would be wellness slash mindfulness in a whole holistic perspective. There's a lot of room to address whether it's even for body care, skin care, but even our home and how we live in it. So there's products that can be developed in a wellness perspective to address those areas too. Nicole, is is mindfulness a thing um, when it comes to Asian consumers? Are products that support and stimulate emotional well-being trending? 
It's interesting because in places like China and Japan and Korea, the mindfulness um, aspects are coming from adjacent categories. So, for example, from home care. Um, so consumers are actively looking for essential oils, essential oil-based fragrances that they can use in their homes. Um, and these can be from, you know, can be a room spray that can also be used on fabric. And people are, you know, treating their homes more of a, as a, as a place to retreat from the world. And then from there, going into their self-care beauty routine. So it's not completely explicit in terms of, you know, this product will look after your skin as well as change your mood. Um, but there's a definitely uh, a recognition that fragrance relaxation has a big part to play in that. Um, in addition, you know, consumers, particularly in Northeast Asia um, or with large Chinese diasporas, are really quite attuned to having massages, which, you know, are seen as, as health-related. They're not really seen as um, for relaxation. They're seen as, you know, a reflexology foot massage is seen as something you should have once a week to keep your, um, you know, system in check and keep you balanced. So I think there's always been that behavior. It's just not explicitly recognized as it is perhaps in the West. And therefore, consumers come from it from a different angle. Let's let's return to that lovely phrase, follow the money. And let's talk about the finance behind it. Because if we look at the results that have come out in, in the last quarter, it's all about China, isn't it? Um, will the growth continue? They've been threatening um, a slowdown in the Chinese economy for, for a long, long time. Um, but it seems to be yet to emerge, especially um, given Alibaba's Singles Day results um, recently. Um, how will that develop? How will the slowdown of colour cosmetics in the US, for example, affect product development? Um, Sheree, do you want to start with that? I would say that, that um, for sure skincare is, is going to start bubbling up again um, in, I, I wouldn't say in place of colour. I think that we have a fair amount of uh, manufacturers here in the U.S. What will happen will be shifting either manufacturing or ways to get around what's going on as far as color is concerned. Um, and I'm speaking based on numbers with skincare and trends. So we're that is kind of happening at the same time. I don't know that it's pushing back color because of China. I think color just will still be obviously used in the beauty market, but skincare is going to have a higher push. And having just, um, I would say, you know, before color is applied to skin, having beautiful skin and, and addressing that is going to be one of the main focuses of, of first steps in beauty. It's hard to predict what will happen. I guess I'm kind of dancing around to the response at the same time <laughs> to no. say, who can, who can say, right? Who can say? I've, this is a sense that I'm getting is that uh, the development isn't stopping. People are not saying, I'm not going to develop color. I think what's happening, you have your peaks and your valleys in the beauty industry, and skin is definitely being the focus right now, just as in an industry over here of the category doesn't mean color is going away and it doesn't mean it's because of the issue with China. It's just, uh, it's saturated at some point and um, it's a refocus. Nicole, what do you think? Can the um, growth momentum in China continue into 2020? Absolutely. Um, you know, every um, consumer's 
um, get richer every day, um, you know, more money flowing into the pockets of younger consumers. I think that's probably what's uh, fundamental, really, is that um, the economic growth in China really is driven by Gen Z and millennials. And that's the complete reverse of the rest of the world, really. You know, no one's really used to seeing young people with more money than, you know, older generations. But that's the case. Brilliant news for the beauty industry, though, because young people want cosmetics. They want skincare and they want gadgets. So absolutely, um, you know, growth uh, ahead. You know, our clients come to us because they want um, insight into how to position their products more effectively in those growth markets like China, for example. And, um, you know, and obviously having to uh, rip up the playbook with what they're used to doing in the West and, and following the rules of what, you know, of what these countries, um, the way they do things. And I think I think for a lot of businesses, that's probably the biggest barrier to growth is really kind of understanding that things are done very, very differently in this part of the world, um, whether it's marketing through to packaging through to, you know, even the regulations. So, uh, but once they kind of get over that and listen to the consultants, they're uh, usually well on their way. So what does make a successful brand in China? What what should brands hoping to crack the market in 2020 be looking for? They should definitely be appealing to uh, Gen Z or to people from the post-80s, post-90s generations, basically anyone who's young, um, up to even 25 years old. That's your... Uh, key demographic obviously women for skincare and and try to be as premium as possible be as transparent about what's in your products um, these key con- these consumers are phenomenally well informed i mean we've always known that about asian consumers but even more so nowadays with the sheer number of you know coals you know key opinion leaders telling people what to buy what to do um you know consumers then do their homework on you know, sites that have, you know, purportedly all the information about ingredients and the efficacy. So, you know, we've got a highly educated consumer um, to just be honest to these consumers and then market to them in a way that they're used to being marketed to, which is, you know, in 15-second messages and keep it short, keep it snappy. Fabulous. Thank you. It's time to wrap up now, unbelievably. So I'm going to ask you each just to contribute what you believe will be the biggest story of 2020. Um, Joanne, as we haven't come to you, do you want to start us off? Wow, that's tricky. (laughs) The biggest story. This is so interesting because I was torn between two very different kind of takes. One, I think there's going to be a scandal a massive scandal of some description where, and I think this is kind of the the almost like where a brand has been not being honest, has problems within its supply chain, um, ingredients declared that aren't declared, you know, something around the, 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 and I think we've already seen a few little moments perhaps in the last year where Estee Laundry have been uncovering a few what we often call ugly truths um, about what's a beautiful industry. So there's, there's, I think, unfortunately, I think there's going to um, be that. But I, I have a feeling that particularly for the UK, um, that the biggest story will be, I think, the rise of um, water, waterless brands. 
this um this we we are heavily um focusing on sustainability in, in the UK and uh, and in western european markets and i think that waterless um waterless formats bars and also how we use and consume water in an increasingly um water um critical environment is is going to be something and also that something we didn't touch on was men uh, <laughs> Oh, men. Where do the men go? Um, I think it's fair to say that a big story will be in the UK, perhaps, and even in Western Europe, which traditionally hasn't been the case, which is the rise of, I'm not going to call it male makeup because I don't think that that's what we need to talk about. But what I would talk about is uh, we've seen increasing amounts of new brands focusing on men where they're using, I guess, uh, they're not called CC creams, but effectively um, concealers, functional colour cosmetics that meet men's skincare needs in a multifunctional kind of way. So that I think there'll be a bit of a, I think there'll be a big launch in something like that. And Cherie? I, I'm going to I'm going to jump on and, and echo what was just shared and add to that because uh, you, you stirred a thought. Um, gender neutral just brands that will be launching for from a minimalism perspective, um, also because we're speaking to a younger generation and multicultural generation, and they have new thoughts and ideas and um, are just living in a different world than what we were living in 10 or 15 years ago. So I would say gender neutral is something to look at, even if it's a micro-segment. Um, that's something new and fresh. And then also from a broad perspective, I'm, I'm, my feet are kind of planted in wellness and how that's going to affect or how that will lay itself out as we continue into 220. And then um, sustainability. And it's not just, it's not just materials. It's the whole package. It's the package itself sustainability, a lot of efforts are being put into sustainability in manufacturing um, of components and how to reduce our carbon footprint and how to reduce how much energy we're using. And then, um, so it's the inside and outside, you know, the, the primary packaging, secondary packaging, formulation, all of that one whole package and sustainability and how we'll cut back even more to, um, make our world healthier. And Nicole, same question for the Asian market? Um, from the consumer perspective, I think we're going to see more focus on bioaccumulative elimination. Um, and that is really, consumers are starting to really question the number of products they're putting on their skin a day. I think the average number is around 12, um, including you know products you use in the shower as well as your skincare. Um, of these 12 products, it kind of comes up to around 200 chemicals, such as phthalates. Um, you know, obviously, um, silicons and parabens have been baddies for a number of years, but I think consumers are going to start to really worry about this, you know, accumul accumulation, can't even say the word, accumulation of all these um, products on their skin. So this is going to start to become a bigger story from the consumer perspective and how to eliminate them from their bodies and how it's entering their bodies as well. So that will be, uh, you know, this idea around what's skin deep um, and what's going into their system. So that will come to the fore. I think I echo um, the other speakers around waterless products. Definitely these will continue to rise 
And I think that the manufacturers themselves will start to respond by putting maybe a, a kind of a, a water print of some kind, a bit like that we see with food prints, measuring the amount of water uh, needed to manufacture these items and within products themselves. So that will start to become important as consumers seek lower water footprints. And then I think um, also zero waste cosmetics. You know, we're, we're seeing this from the food side. Food side really, really influences what happens in skincare and with a huge focus on, you know, zero waste in food, zero waste cosmetics will definitely come out um, as a strong runner for next year. Fascinating. Thank you so much, everybody. To sum up, I think perhaps sell less to more people would be the theme for 2020. I'd like to thank everyone for taking part today. Thank you, Cherie, Nicole and Joanne. And thank you to our audience for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.